You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you can probably guess why Philippians 4 is an excellent passage for Thanksgiving, but I think an excellent passage to look at in light of sort of how people are approaching the coming holidays. Uh, In other words, people are kind of saying it's not going to be the same. You know, how how is it going to be different? Um, You know, COVID continues to spike all over the world right now. Uh, And it sort of raises the question, how, how can we be thankful and content? when all of this is going on around us. Uh, If you're familiar at all with C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a fictionary book about a demon named Screwtape who is sort of an older demon, very experienced. And he's writing to give counsel and advice to a younger demon named Wordwood. And in one of those letters that C.S. Lewis has in the book, he has, Screw tape giving this advice to Wormwood. In other words, here's a way that you can really work on Christians to get them to fall in their faith. And, he's, and he simply says this, he advises Wormwood, what we want is a race who are perpetually devoted to the pursuit of the rainbow's end, that they're never satisfied and they're never happy. And I think we can see there's a growing sense of discontentment, not only in our world, but even sometimes as Christians, we wrestle with that. So how can we be content? How can we experience Thanksgiving, even at times in the midst of a pandemic or in the midst of personal crises that you might have going on in your life? So it's in Philippians 4 that we have three principles presented to us. Uh, Keep in mind, Paul's writing this letter from a Roman imprisonment. 
Uh, he's responding to a gift that was sent to him at the hands of Epaphroditus, who came from the church in Philippi. Uh, we don't know the exact nature of that gift. It could have included some financial support. It may have included physical assistance, like blankets, books, maybe some food. But, but his response is a letter of thanksgiving. And so in thinking of three principles that should help all of us, that Paul lived out for us. The first one I want to look at is simply defining contentment. So Paul begins with this thought, we, we need to define what does contentment and, and thanksgiving mean? Uh, and so he works at defining this. If you look at verses 11 and 12, two times he says the word content. I have learned what it means to be content. I have learned the secret of being content. And so we want to hear that in its first century context. In other words, where does this word content come from? And how was it used when Paul is using this in a first century setting? Well, the word content is not a new word. Paul did not coin it. He did not invent it. It was a word in his culture, and it was a word typically used by philosophers. So in other words, there were Cynics, Epicureans, and Stoics, three leading schools of philosophy that used this word content. But what they meant by content was completely self-sufficient, completely independent, not relying on any other person. But we might say almost maybe they're the precursors of New Hampshire's theme, live free or die. Uh, you know, in other words, get through life on your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's what they meant by content. So Paul takes a cultural word, but now he's going to invest it with a completely different meaning. And we realize contentment does not come naturally to any of us. Uh, we, we are creatures of the eyes, so if we see something that we don't have, we tend to want it. How many of you have ever seen a commercial and were not thinking about that product at all? And you saw the commercial or like, I need that. I have to have that. We, we naturally are not people who are content because of our sinful nature. So if you look again at verses 11 and 12, you see that Paul uses the word, but he's going to invest it with a new spiritual significance that's evident when you go down now to verse 19. Because in verse 19, he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So there Paul says, here's this word you've heard in your culture, but I'm redefining it to refer to God's sufficiency, Christ's sufficiency. That yes, you were to be content because you are sufficient and made sufficient in Christ Jesus. In other words, our needs will be met not by anything in us, but everything we've just praised God for, his character his faithfulness. And so Paul is defining con being content for us as being in a personal relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. And because of that, notice he says in verse 19 again, it's according to his glorious riches in Christ that our needs will be met. It's not according to you or to your circumstances, but it's according to God's glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So we see a complete reversal of Paul's definition. And if you would just turn, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8, Paul speaks to Timothy about what it means to be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And Paul found himself, even in encouraging Timothy in how to lead the church in Titus, that we are people prone to discontentment, to defining what it means to be content by our circumstances, by our health, by our feeling of security, rather than defining it in terms of our sufficiency in God and our sufficiency in Christ. Now, you can search all over for definitions of what it means to be content. But the best one I've ever found was written almost 300 years ago. Uh, it was written by Jeremiah Burroughs, a, a pastor in London. And he defined contentment this way, but it really is Christian contentment that he was defining. He says, contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So just listen to that one more time. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So we move from defining contentment through the eyes of Paul, defining it in a way that is scriptural, to now we come to the issue of learning contentment. Since contentment is not natural, how can we get to a point where we can say that we are learning what contentment is, that we are experiencing it as a reality. And so we've already seen in verses 11 and 12, not only has Paul used the word content twice, but he says, I have learned. First he says, I've learned what it means to be content. Then he says, I have learned the secret of being content. And so if you think about those two words, to learn something is a verb that points to directing one's mind to something. So since contentment is not natural, and we do focus more on circumstances, what someone else has, we would like that, that what we need to do is direct our minds to the true definition of what it means to be content. But then notice the second word that Paul uses, I have learned the secret of what it means to be content. 
Now, it's probably true that Paul uses the word secret here because this was a word that was often used by many of his critics. In other words, in, in Paul's day, we know there were what was called mystery religions, religions that had like secret initiation rites and, and secret knowledge that was only available to a select few. And so Paul, in a way, is, is kind of using irony here. He says, here's the secret of contentment, but then he's going to tell you the secret. So imagine if, if I were to say to you, I have something I want to share with you, but it's a secret. We'd all kind of lean into our screens a little bit. We want to make sure we hear. Well, Paul gets their attention. We, we all want to know, what does it mean, and how do you find contentment? How do you find thanksgiving in difficult situations? And so Paul says, I will tell you, but it really is no secret at all, because every believer should be able to grow in this area. And so if you look at verse 13, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. In other words, contentment is not spiritual complacency. And I think sometimes we confuse that. We think to be content means to be complacent. And, and those are two very different truths. Paul's not encouraging spiritual complacency. J just sit back, don't do anything. Uh, what he's really saying here is that the opposite side, as we trust in God, we at the same time should be spiritually being stretched and challenged. And verse 13 clearly shows us Paul was not spiritually complacent. And in fact, we are the benefit of much of Paul's trials and circumstances, which would make us be ungrateful because it's through those experiences Paul wrote many of his letters while he's in prison, which is the case in point with Philippians. So contentment and learning contentment is do not confuse that with complacency. Because even in the previous chapter in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Paul said that, that forgetting what's behind, I press on toward the prize of the high calling of Christ. What a reminder that Paul doesn't see himself as a victim of his circumstances or his conditions, but he is a victor in Christ Jesus. So if, if, if being content is not complacency, then, then how do we learn to be content? How do we learn thanksgiving? Well, you notice in verse 12, Paul tells us what we, we really don't want to hear. And that is that contentment and thanksgiving is learned best in the school of both blessing and affliction. Contentment and thanksgiving is learned best in the school of both blessing and thanksgiving. And so if you look closely at verse 12, you'll probably caught Paul's comprehensive language. In other words, he, he covers those extremes and anything that would fall between those extremes. So in verse 12, you, you see him using words like this, need and then plenty content in any and every situation, then fed or hungry, plenty or want, 
In other words, his word choice covers every possible circumstance or situation. Because we have a tendency, even as Christians sometimes, is to listen to God's word, but then want to come up with an exception. But, but this doesn't apply to my circumstances. This doesn't cover this. God doesn't know how I'm feeling in this situation. Paul says, no, no, you can go from blessing to want any and every situation. And we learn contentment by trusting in God. In other words, I think this is the perfect opportunity for the church, for Christians, to demonstrate to our world what does contentment and thanksgiving look like. That we're not just trying to make the best of a bad situation. We're doing more than that. We're rejoicing in God's faithfulness. We're saying, Lord, teach us when, when these other things are stripped away, like the ability to physically meet together, uh, to be with all of our family on, on certain holidays. If you strip that away, can we still say that God is good? And can we say it and mean it? Because Paul's not just saying words here, but, but you can tell he's speaking the truth. And so when we think about learning contentment, drop down to verses 19 and 20, because wrapped into that contentment are two foundational doctrines. In verse 19 and 20, you have Paul moving to basically a doxology. He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Wrapped into that doxology is the reminder of God's sovereignty. And that is why Jeremiah Burroughs, when he defined contentment, spoke about submitting everything to God's disposal of things in our life. In other words, if God is sovereign, nothing has entered our life, the life of our community, anything worldwide that has not been permitted by God. And that should give us great comfort because we know that God is perfect in his knowledge. We, we know as, as Tony shared and Ashley, their verse from Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good, that word good there does not mean all things are pleasant, but all things are profitable. That they are directed by the second doctrine that's evident in verses 19 and 20. It's not just God's sovereignty, but his providence. That, that he is a loving heavenly father. That he guides, directs, and governs all things to his purposes. And for each of us in Christ, his purpose is that we would grow stronger in the faith, uh, that we would have a better understanding in our present circumstances and situation. What does contentment and thanksgiving look like? That, that we could be able to say like Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, like 9 and 10, that, that God's grace is sufficient for us. That when we are weak, he is strong. In other words, we are in a better position to express praise and thanksgiving when things in our life are not necessarily 
looking like we want them to. Because then clearly we're not trusting in our circumstances. We're not trusting in the latest news report on the vaccine, but, but our trust is in God's sovereignty and God's providence. So Paul has laid out for us the importance of defining what it means to be content and defining contentment. He's also now uh, as well uh, shown us what is required to learning to be content. But then he finally moves to the third principle, and that is practicing contentment. And, and imagine for a moment, given what we know, how you know our neighbors, those who don't know Christ, are kind of living from day to day. Uh, they're focused on just their immediate circumstances for how they're feeling, how they're approaching Thanksgiving, how they'll even approach Christmas and the new year. Imagine the difference an impact that godly contentment would have on those around us if we led the way in modeling and following what Paul says here. Because as, as you look at this more closely, notice in verse 10 of Ephesians 4, that when you think of the impact of practicing godly contentment, it will be both a blessing and encouragement to you personally but also to others. So in, in verse 10, Paul speaks in a very personal note. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Paul realizes the only reason this gift didn't arrive earlier was not because of lack of desire, but lack of opportunity. But notice how this personally impacted Paul, that, that he rejoiced greatly. And then you notice in verse 14, Paul, again, wants to thank them for the gift, but also remind them that it wasn't that he's just after their gift, you know, or that it was them providing this, that he was desperate. Like he wants them to know God was taking care of them, but he so appreciates their display, their practice of generosity which comes out of their contentment in the Lord. But in looking at verse 14, he says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So Paul's personally blessed because of how they practiced contentment in Christ. But then you also notice in verses 15 through 18, there is the effect that this has on the Philippian believers. Like not only is Paul blessed, but there's the reciprocal aspect. They are blessed by what they did. Listen to verses 15 through 18. He says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again, when I was in need, not that I am looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. And we'll stop at that point in this verse. But, but did you catch what Paul is saying there? He says, one, I'm, I'm more concerned in verse 17 
at how this is credited to your account. Now, Paul wasn't doing what sometimes we see people do. Uh, you do something for someone, they say, well, you owe me one. That's not what Paul was saying. He was actually looking at their gifts sent to him and their history of, of always sharing with Paul as being a spiritual fruit that they will be blessed for, not just now, but when they stand before God. So when he says, I'm, I'm you know, looking at this in terms of how this is credited to your account, he's, he's like praising them for their faithfulness and obedience to God. And it's because they are content in Christ that even out of their meager supplies that they have, they're willing to share that with others because their trust and confidence is in their God and Father and the riches that are theirs in Christ Jesus. But then verse 18 should catch your attention when Paul says, I have received full payment. I am amply supplied. Now, it is to be expected that if they did send some kind of financial gift to help him, we shouldn't assume that that was a large gift. Based on what we know of the Philippian church, this was not a wealthy congregation. And when you hear of the different churches in the epistles, consider it is likely many of them may have been like the size of our congregation. We, we shouldn't assume we're talking about mega churches or hundreds that are gathering in these individual households. But imagine Paul writing back in response to whatever that gift was saying, you know what, that gift was full payment. I, I couldn't ask for anything more. My needs are completely met. And then he uses a term right out of his culture when he says, I am amply supplied. This comes right out of the commercial market. It's a word that would describe a transaction where you get a receipt that it has been paid in full. In other words, Paul saying this gift, this letter I'm sending back is basically my receipt saying, all my needs are met. Now think about that for a moment. Nothing has changed in Paul's circumstances. He hasn't been released from imprisonment. He's still being confined. His liberties and rights, we could say, are, are basically very limited by the Roman authorities. And he's saying, I have everything I need. There's nothing that I need. And he expresses his gratitude to them. But then you notice in the rest of verse 18 through 20, that practicing contentment is not just going to be a blessing and encouragement to the person who receives our generosity or our help. Uh, but more than that, it is evidence of our obedience to God. Because he takes whatever that gift was, and in verse 18, the second half, he says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So it may have look, been looked at as very small in the eyes of the world. Paul says that is of such importance, because by practicing this, you're showing your obedience to God that you are honoring God because of his provision for your needs 
and the language he uses this is like a fragrant offering. Uh, the, the, the smell of this goes up into God's presence. It's acceptable to God, and it is pleasing to God. I'm sure at some point, maybe during our Thanksgiving meal, as you get to the end of that meal, you'll, you'll kind of push yourself away from the table, and you'll say something to this effect, I'm stuffed. I, I couldn't eat another thing. In a way, Paul's saying, when you know God and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should be able to say, no matter what your circumstances, I'm fully satisfied. I have every reason to be thankful. And I think given the day and age in which we live, not only is this true for Christians in every age, but even more so, the tremendous impact we can have on each other, we can have on those who don't know Christ. When we show the world, what does contentment and thanksgiving look like from the perspective of being in Christ Jesus? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear message from Paul that reminds us that we often are discontent. Uh, that we speak of what we want, not what we have been graciously given. And so I pray that we would be a people that understand Christian contentment and practice it. We ask this in your name. Amen.